It's good to see all of you this morning. I'll invite you again to join me in your Bibles in the book of John chapter 2, Gospel of John chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 13. We ended last week at verse 11. Verse 12, something of a transition seems to happen because they finish with this wedding, and one of the next significant events is that Jesus and his family and his disciples, this is what verse 12 tells us, they all go down to Capernaum. It's been suggested, based on this and a number of other uh, things, that this is actually Jesus' family moving to Capernaum, relocating there. Now, there seems to be some, some evidence in what is spoken of about Jesus' brothers and sisters, his physical brothers and sisters, later on in the gospel accounts, that they may live there as a family from this point on. So it may be that that's what's being described. But in the course of, of John's recounting here in this gospel, they go down to Capernaum, and they're there for a very short time. They have another trip to make. And the reason for that is that the Passover celebration has come. So on they go to Jerusalem, and the events that we'll look at this morning take place in Jerusalem. Now, this will be the first of at least three Passover celebrations that we're going to be told about in John's Gospel. Uh, there's maybe a fourth, but there are at least three that he's going to describe to us. And I'm going to try to mention that as we come to them, uh, and, and really emphasize that going through this Gospel, because it... It's helpful, at least to me, it's very helpful, those sorts of markers that give us a sense of the passing of time as we're going through this story. The next time we hear of Jesus coming back to Jerusalem for the Passover, we'll know that a year has gone by since the events of this morning. So those sorts of time markers are helpful for us in keeping track of things. Now, if you've turned there, you notice that the events before us this morning are the events of Jesus cleansing the temple. In Jerusalem. And before we read the passage together and begin to go through it as a whole, uh, I thought we'd begin by addressing what really is a common question uh, as regards this event. And I don't want us to spend much time here, but it is a reasonable question, and I think one that is helpful to, to, to speak to as we're beginning. It's the question of comparing this event and its recounting in John with what we have in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's a question of timing uh, and of what each of those Gospel writers are doing. In the Synoptic Gospels, we don't have a record of a temple cleansing happening at the outset of Jesus' ministry. All four Gospels describe Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, but the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record him doing this at the end of his ministry. Maybe you've heard of this of this distinction between them. So Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, all speak to Jesus cleansing the temple, but it's taking place the last time he comes into Jerusalem. So the question is, uh, what exactly is going on there? Did Jesus do this two times? Did he do it at the very beginning of his ministry when he first comes into Jerusalem, and then again the last time he comes in? Or did he do it only once? And if he did it only once, then somebody is moving their chronology of this, and who's moving their chronology? Uh, really, to me, one of the important things for us to keep in mind is just what we're wondering and what we're not wondering. 
For example, we, we already know in a number of other cases that some of the material in the Gospels is arranged by, uh, by theme and not arranged by a hard chronology. They were not nearly so concerned with that as we are, and that's completely fine. They can write the story as they want to do it. Uh, we have no problem with that. It seems that the majority at this point in history, the majority position is that there was a single temple cleansing event and that it happened at the end of Jesus' ministry and that John is moving it here uh, to the outset of. And it may be that that's exactly what's happened. That wouldn't be a problem. It is very possible, though, and so full disclosure, I, I am starting to lean to the second option. I've, for a long time, I have, I have felt settled that it was a singular event, um, and that may be what it is. I think I may be leaning in the other direction, though, at this point, and that is the notion that it's happened, that it actually happened twice, that Jesus did this on two occasions, uh, once here and then once several years later. I think it's worth noting that uh, the first five chapters of John's Gospel, which we're in the middle of right now, as a block, are essentially not covered at all in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and remember, we said early on that John is clearly assuming knowledge of the other Gospel accounts in what he wrote, so that even recently when he mentions, uh, when he mentions Simon Peter's brother, before Simon Peter has even been introduced and even been named as Peter, uh, things like that indicate he's, he's already assuming that we know some other uh, information from those other gospel accounts, and what he's doing is he's supplementing that. So if Jesus did cleanse the temple at the outset of his ministry, and if he did so at the end as well, but the others already attest to that, what, what, what would come out then in this gospel would be exactly what we have here. It would be John describing the first cleansing and not mentioning the second cleansing. It would make sense. Anyway, this should not matter very much to us. Nothing hangs on that question. The event clearly took place, and so our question this morning needs to be this. What is John, the Apostle John, what is he presenting to us here in giving us this account? What is he directing our attention to as he's telling us about what Jesus did in the temple? That's where our attention needs to be. And my hope is that in speaking to that just quickly here at the beginning, we can just move past it and focus on what John is giving us here in this account. And this morning, I want us to consider the answer to that under two headings. Uh, we are going to see, as we begin to read here, uh, two things that the Lord Jesus is bringing and is presenting to us in this account. One of those is zeal. We'll see that in verses 13 to 17. And the second is a reality of fulfillment. We could just say it like that, fulfillment, in verses 18 to 22. So let me read John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Zeal and fulfillment. I want to suggest to you that each of these two presentations regarding the Lord Jesus Christ has direct implications for you and for me this morning. The implications as to how we ought to live our lives as his people today. The first thing that we see is this great display, this famous display of zeal on the part of Jesus in verses 13 to 17. Who are the recipients of this zeal in our passage? This is a time, I would assume, I would guess, where you don't want to be the recipient of a particular demonstration of zeal. Uh, Who are the recipients here, the happy recipients? Well, they are the sellers of oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers and the animals themselves, the sheep and the oxen in particular. It seems pretty clear. We're not told whether he uses this whip of cords on any of the the human individuals here. I don't know about that. But it, it, it is very clearly a deliberate preparation to be able to succeed in this. It's not easy to drive out sheep and oxen, uh, and this cord would be useful in that. So they're the recipients of this zeal as well. And it's important that we understand, it's very important, that, that we see what it is that Jesus is zealous against and what he's not zealous against. Some have suggested, I think very wrongly, that we're to see in this an attack against the entire sacrificial system. There's no evidence of that. That's not what he's doing at all. He is not attacking the entire sacrificial system. God instituted the sacrificial system. Uh, Even the the financial transactions here and the selling of these animals is quite necessary. There are travelers coming from all over. They cannot often bring their own animals with them. They need someone to sell it to them. They're coming with money, some of which is improper to be received by the temple. It's not clean. They need a way to get the right money. These things are, are, are necessary uh, realities. What is an attack against is one particular thing, and that's the location of these things, the location of these activities. When you look to, for example, the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels of Jesus cleansing, uh, perhaps then at the end of his ministry, or at least what's being emphasized by them, what's, what, what Jesus speaks to there and is said to emphasize is the dishonesty of the, of the trade going on, the advantage taking. So he calls them there a den of robbers. And that, that then was clearly a part in that instance of what needed to be emphasized. 
That is not the emphasis here in the Gospel of John. It's not what Jesus is emphasizing. Let me read, beginning in verse 14, and just even emphasize with my voice this location problem. Starting in verse 14, here's what we read. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Literally what he says is, take these things from here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus is outraged at the decision to do this business, to place these things in the temple itself. It's interesting to notice that even in the way he does it, you notice that nothing is actually lost to anybody in this event. The animals run off. They go through the gate and get out of the temple. They can be, they can be caught quite easily and brought back. They're not lost. The coins are, are spilled out onto the ground in a clear and powerful statement. They can be picked back up again. The only objects that really are in danger of being lost, I guess, are the ones with wings. The pigeons are in cages and things break their cages, open their cages, and the pigeons fly off and there's loss. And in this clear display of self-control and even care, Jesus gets to the pigeons and he tells those who were selling the pigeons to take them out of here. Do you notice how he's doing this? Uh, This is a display of complete self-control and even merciful action as he is correcting this gross defilement, this gross inappropriate use of the space of the temple. So we have to ask the question, what is so wrong with the location of these things? What is it that has Jesus so angry as he comes to the temple during Passover and he sees these things happening within the temple grounds? Well, let's see. How well will you be able to worship in here if there are sheep and oxen and pigeons and coin exchanges going on? You're going to be able to uh, very naturally come into a posture of worship in this place of worship? I would think not. One of you ladies were to drop your purse and have the contents spill out. If you have any coins in your purse, I don't know if we're, we're carrying money anymore. But if one purse falls and coins fall out, we're going to hear it. Right? If there's professional money changing going on, this is coin for coin. It's going to make a lot of noise by itself as well. It has utterly ceased then at that point, for all intents and purposes, to be what it's designed to be, to be his father's house, a house of awe and reverence and worship for the Lord God. Instead, it has become just what he calls it. It's become a house of trade. Or as other translations put what he says here, it's become a place of business. It's become a marketplace. The temple has become a marketplace. That's what outrages Jesus. And we could go a bit further as well. We could get more specific even than that. Because this commerce that they have set up is happening in a particular place within the temple. It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where Gentiles who would come to learn about God, to worship God, they can get to this part. They can't go through any further 
places, to the, uh, to the deeper courts. So think about the distinction then. In that sense, Jews would be distracted from worship while they're there. Uh, they're in the temple, and yet they're not worshiping really at all. They are, they are transacting. Uh, but they're going to move past that point. They're going to get, go past another wall or two and then worship in a much quieter place, aren't they? What are the Gentiles going to do? This will be the only experience of temple worship that Gentiles are going to receive as a result of this choice to place these things here. Again, these are things that need to happen. There is no reason they need to happen here. You're going to put them in in the closest proximity for convenience sake to the temple, but you're not going to put them past a place where it is inappropriate to put them. And what the temple authorities have decided is, we'll go ahead and stick them in the court of the Gentiles. That doesn't matter. We won't go past that. It's a strong statement of disregard. Do you understand this morning that God's plan has always entailed his love reaching out to every tongue and tribe and nation? Jesus Christ has always been God's plan A, hasn't he? And Jesus Christ has a heart for reaching the nations. In fact, here's what's amazing. What we find in the New Testament as it speaks to us about the plan of Jesus and the accomplishing of that plan, what we find is that this this is a part of the very culmination of the plan of Christ himself. He came, he ministered in his earthly ministry, and he must first go to the Jews. That's very plain. It's especially plain in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples at first, Matthew chapter 10, do not go to the Gentiles but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says in Matthew chapter 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. It is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, There is a clear sense of temporal priority in Jesus' ministry and his coming. He is the seed of Abraham. We saw that earlier this year in the book of Galatians. But a seed does not sprout until it dies. Isn't that what Paul reasons in 1 Corinthians 15? And after Jesus dies and rises again, his final great commission is going to send his ambassadors to the ends of the earth to baptize all the nations. Jesus, in cleansing the court of the Gentiles, is indeed demonstrating a zeal for the pure worship of the house of his father. But in light of who this is, we also have to notice the way in which Jesus is clearing out, evening out even, the opportunity for worship both for Jews and Gentiles. Paul is going to say so much about this as Jesus' purpose and as his effect. Because before Christ came, Gentiles were in a meaningful way alienated from God by being strangers to the covenants of promise. He writes that in Ephesians chapter 2. I would ask you to keep your finger here, but go to Ephesians 2.13 for just a moment. I 
I'd like you to look at this as I read it, because I'm going to read from verses 13 to 21. It's a little bit long, and I think it's helpful for you to see this as I read it. Listen to how it describes the effect of Christ's having come and done what he did. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he quotes the Old Testament. This has always been the plan. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is what Jesus has come to do. We come back to the, our text in John. You know, it's interesting, if you remember this, do you remember what it will be? We mentioned last week, again, that his hour has not yet come, but that changes in a significant way at the end of John chapter 12. He stops speaking of it that way. Do you remember what it is in John 12? that will spark Jesus to say, now, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's going to be three years from now, during the Passover. Jesus will be back here in Jerusalem. And what's going to happen is a group of Gentiles are going to walk up and ask to see him. News of this man will have traveled to the Gentiles and they will have sought him out in his ministry, and it's at that moment, it's almost funny because maybe he speaks with them, but we're not even told that he replies to them. Their asking to see him is what launches him into the declaration that now the hour has come. Jesus is going to say about eight chapters from now, in John chapter 10, he'll say this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remember this statement, this prophetic statement in Psalm 69, verse 9, and they're right to lock on to that. It's exactly what is put on display here in our Lord. He has displayed it pretty tangibly, hasn't he? Whip and all. Zeal for his father's house zeal for the temple itself. But see, not just for the temple itself, but for the right and faithful worship of God. Worship in truth. He's going to tell the Samaritan woman that in just a couple of chapters, isn't he? About the kind of worship that God uh, demands and calls and, and his own effect on the bringing of that worship, because that sort of worship in spirit and in truth that he will speak of then is impossible apart from Jesus. 
He must make the way for such worship. And in fact, he's already about to start making allusion and reference to that fact. Look with me down at verse 18. And try to picture this situation in your mind. He has just cleared out all of these people, the the marketeers, in a very public way. He stands there probably breathing a little heavily. There are coins scattered on the ground around him. People are giving him lots of room. Some people have fled through the, through the gates and are now peering back around the gates to see what in the world's going to happen next. And here come the temple authorities. It says, the Jews said to him, not just Jews in general, the Jewish leadership there, uh, responsible for what goes on in the temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus, who has just displayed this zeal that we've been looking at, is going to answer them in such a way that he predicts something that we can call fulfillment here. Fulfillment. Verse 18 again. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. It's been pointed out that that the, the very fact that they are asking him this indicates that his demonstration has been relatively visible for them to see. They have already logged in their mind that there is something of a profound, of a potentially prophetic significance going on here. If he just seemed to them like some sort of a hooligan or an unstable person mentally, they don't need to come up to him and ask him for a sign to to designate this. They could have dispatched of him without conversation. So the fact that they're coming up to him and asking him for this sign shows that Jesus is making an understood demonstration. And he replies to them in a way that I am quite sure was not expected. He does offer them a sign. And we know more than the temple authorities did, don't we? But try to hear it like they heard it. Here's the sign he gives them. He says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now if that's true, and he does that, that's quite a sign indeed, isn't it? Would that validate his authority? within the temple to do these things? Well, it certainly would. In that sort of straightforward way, he is offering them a sign. You are right to discern that I am claiming a divine authority here. You're right to ask me for a sign. Here it is. But you could, we could object here at first. Is this really an answer to their question? Is it really a sign that they can cash in on? Surely it's not a sign they can actually cash in on, is it? Well, let's think about that. What he tells them is, he says, destroy this temple. And then this is what will happen as a result. It's an imperative. Destroy this temple. Even in English, we often use imperatives like this, not actually commanding something of someone, but speaking in a future tense. Uh, The doctor says, 
do this thing, do this movement, and you'll be crippled for life. He is not ordering you to do that thing, is he? He is saying, in the day that you do do it, this will happen. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so what we have, according to verse 21, it's, it's clear. This is for Jesus the first time in John's gospel that he is speaking directly in reference to his death and resurrection. I mean, we're in chapter 2. Already, he is beginning to prepare and to plant the seeds. He already knows what he's here for and what he's going to do. He's already saying these things. And what that means then is that this is indeed a sign that they can cash in on. It's just not one that will be demonstrable until later. But he's telling them to look for the sign of his resurrection. It's not at all unlike what he's recorded as saying in Matthew 12, 39. He says there, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's even more specific and detailed than we have here. But it's the same sort of response. You want a sign? Here's the sign. I will die, and in three days I will be raised. And if three days after my death I do not emerge from that tomb, you have no reason to regard anything I've done or said with authority. I do want us to think carefully about this this morning, about the significance of Jesus answering like he does here. The sign that he points them to of the resurrection certainly has confirming power, doesn't it? But he chooses at this point not to speak in a direct way. He doesn't say in answer to their request for a sign. He doesn't say, kill me, and in three days I will rise again from the dead. He doesn't say that. He speaks of his death by speaking of the destruction of the temple. Well, we'll say it this way first. Is that an appropriate connection for him to make? And then we'll immediately say, shame on us. Whatever Jesus does is appropriate. He has all authority. So then we'll change the question. Uh, why is that an appropriate connection for Jesus to make here between his death and the destruction of the temple? It is appropriate because Jesus understands there to be a relationship between that temple and himself and his body. In answering them like this, it's not at all unlike what we just saw him do in verse 4 of this chapter, where Mary says they have no wine, and he speaks in reference to his hour coming. It was a similar connection there. He is speaking with a wider perspective than those around him are thinking in. But when he is done with them, they will see what he was saying. This is the second time that's happened. It's not near the last time. Along the way, there will be a lot of people confused, a lot of misunderstandings. There will be no misunderstandings left when Jesus emerges from that tomb. We call this relationship that he is claiming between himself and the temple, we call it a big term. It's a whole field. And we'll be looking at this uh, quite a bit in future weeks as well. We call it a typological relationship. Central to this is the understanding that Jesus, 
as we've said, is and has always been God's plan A, isn't he? The Old Testament is not a record of times when God was trying other things to rescue his people, and none of them worked, so he sent his son. It's not at all what's happening in the Old Testament, is it? On the contrary, the Old Testament is a record of all of the ways that God was framing the thinking of his people, shaping their understanding and experiences and mindset, understanding things about themselves and things about their needs, understanding things about the Savior he was sure to send, so that when Jesus finally comes and atones for sin, there would be categories in place to understand what in the world was happening here. What is the temple? It's a holy, set-apart location on earth where the presence of the holy God dwells with man, made possible by atoning sacrifices that bring purification. That's what the temple is. Let's go, let's, let's keep doing this. What is Aaron in the Old Testament? Aaron and his line is an imperfect object lesson that the people need a priest to mediate their purification. What is Moses? Moses is an imperfect object lesson that the people will need a prophet to teach them of who God is. What is David? Huh? David is an imperfect object lesson that the people will need to be rescued by the sending of a king. And not just any king, a man after God's own heart. He is also, through the covenant that God made with David, the one who now uniquely stands on behalf of all the people, bearing the title, the Son of God. Adam was the Son of God in Genesis. Going through the Old Testament, the people of God, the people of Israel, are called the Son of God. And when in the, in the course of his interactions with them, David comes and God brings a Davidic covenant, that title, Son of God, is uniquely given to the king on behalf of the people. This is significant. What is Solomon? Well, Solomon is the imperfect son of David who is a promised one to come and who comes full of wisdom. All of these people are, of course, real. But in the story of redemptive history, God has designated them and raised them up for this very purpose, that they be signs, that they show themselves through greater revelation to be shadows of something greater that is coming. God is a great storyteller. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, something greater than Solomon is here. That's what Matthew 12, 42 says. Something greater than David is here. End of Matthew 22. Remember, Jesus asks them, <laughs> if, if the Christ is the son of David, how does David call him Lord? And it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That is the best. Something greater than Moses is here. Hebrews 3.3, he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Something greater than Aaron is here. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then the Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All these things are tied to Christ typologically. And that is not a matter of, we could say, it's not a matter of hermeneutics. It's not about how we choose to read the Old Testament. This is a matter of revelation. This is a matter of what God has chosen to do in revealing himself and his plan. And that's why it is altogether right for Jesus to draw the kind of line that he draws here between himself and the temple. Because that has been its purpose from the beginning. It's always been its purpose. And I would just say before we move on to one final point, that it it is very important that we are trying to faithfully hear what the gospel writer means us to hear. We have to be getting used to, more and more all the time, the willingness to let individual books of the Bible speak for themselves and not to try to make them say everything at once. So, for example, some commentators see in this cleansing of the temple an acted out foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. Does Jesus ever speak in reference to, prophetically, the destruction of the temple? Of course he does. Does that mean that's what he's a part of what he's doing here in cleansing the temple in the Gospel of John? Not at all. And I would say that's completely out of place here. The temple in John's Gospel is not bad. It is, its preparatory function is nearing completion. Now, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, the temple is pretty clearly spoken of and used in reference to the centralized location of Jewish authority, which it certainly is. And in that context, then, Jesus is going to, for example, tell the parable of the wicked tenants who kept rejecting the owner and finally killed his son. And what will the owner do? He'll come and drive those tenants out. This kind of of prophetic parable is given in Matthew's gospel. Jesus will prophesy there about the destruction of the temple. All of that is right. But our context here gives us no reason to see that sort of thing as being the point. The point here is the fulfillment connection between the temple and Jesus himself. That's what we need to take from this. Lastly then, this morning, is an observation that we really ought not to miss, and that's even because just pastorally for our hearts, there is so much counsel that we can take from this. We could phrase it in the form of a question. So here's the question. I'm thinking of that that moment when this happens. How many people understood what Jesus was teaching right then when he taught it? I'll give you a hint. It, It rhymes with the name of a famous Roman emperor. It's a really small number. The answer is zero. Zero people understood what Jesus was teaching right then. So that means that a whole host of people, his disciples included, stood, heard him teach, make a very powerful lesson and statement, and completely did not understand it in that moment. Notice that Jesus gives no evidence of being frustrated by this. And the fact that the answer is zero 
that day has zero negative impact on God's good plans for his people, does it? And that's because at the right time, which is to say exactly according to Jesus' timing, the disciples did understand. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Exactly as they did, if you remember, when he gave the sign of the water turned to wine. They saw, and when they perceived the glory behind it and the significance, they believed. They will do the same with this sign in Jesus' perfect timing. My friends, there is nothing, there is nothing that your sovereign Lord intends you to learn and understand that you will fail to understand when all is said and done. I read a few weeks ago, someone make a comment about, this was in reference to the water to wine miracle in the last passage. I didn't share it then, but it fits maybe even better here, so I would share this. He, he said simply, it is ours to fill the jars with water. It is his to turn it into wine. So much of our Endurance, um, our ability to persistently seek God's kingdom and his righteousness depends on our confident understanding of this. J.C. Ryle put it so well. He said, it is a comfortable and cheering thought that the same kind of thing that happened to the disciples is often going on at the present day. The sermons that are preached to apparently heedless ears in churches are not all lost and thrown away. The instruction that is given in schools and pastoral visits is not all wasted and forgotten. The texts that are taught by parents to children are not all taught in vain. There is often a resurrection of sermons and texts and instructions after an interval of many years. The good seed sometimes springs up after he that sowed it has been long dead and gone. Let preachers go on preaching, and teachers teaching, and parents training up their children in the way they should go. He ends by saying this, Their labor is not in vain in the Lord. Their words are remembered far more than they think. And my friends, it's true of the biblical wisdom that you would pass on to others. But it is true of your own learning and instruction and training as well. I've heard it many, many times, the frustrated sense that we can all have at points, can't we? That something was fruitless because I didn't get anything out of it right then. Or because I sat through that and I feel like as soon as it was done, I forgot all of it. I couldn't tell you anything I just heard. And there's this sense in, in our voice of discouragement or even hopelessness. That's inappropriate. It is ours to fill the jars with water. It is his to turn it into wine. And just like with the disciples here, 
at the right time, the Lord brings things back to our mind. And he is not anxious or frustrated with your status right now in the plans he has for you. His plans are always going according to plan. You understand that this morning? Jesus has never wringed his hands in anxiety, not once. His plans are always going according to plan. So as an act of faith then, in his lordship over your life, here's the call. Keep filling your jars with water. I'll close with three takeaways. This is just meant as a summary of what we've seen. Number one, our Lord was zealous to create in his people acceptable worship of his Father. And our unity and equality and purified consciences are the result of that. They are the result of his zeal to do the will of his Father. And we thank God, don't we, that they are the result of that and not the result of any effort that we must give on our behalf. If it were the result of anything else than his zeal and his faithfulness, we would be without hope. Takeaway number two, we must learn to read our Bibles with the understanding that Jesus Christ is the plan A of all of human history. We have to be settled in our mind. Human history is a story about Jesus Christ. And that is why he reigns over every area of our thought and practice. He is the Lord of history. He is also the Lord of economics. He is the Lord of politics. He is the Lord of the church. There is no realm of your life that he allows you to keep for yourself. He demands all of it. Third and finally, if we really believe that the Lord Jesus is seated right now on his throne, reigning over his creation, reigning over your life and mine, we show that as we persistently Trusting in his providential care for us, keep filling the jars with water. Strive to know him better and leave the results to him. Trust him with what he will do with your efforts. Which one of us as we lay dying one day will say, I wish I had done that less? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have shown us this morning so kindly and gently, but truly, you have shown us what you purpose to show us every day of our lives. Glimpses of just how helpless and needy we truly are apart from you. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one and from the thoughts that he would tempt us with. Give us as your people the wisdom to reject the lies that would make us feel like hopeless projects in your hands. And if there are those here this morning who have in recent days become very discouraged with their spiritual progress, with their sanctification. I pray that you would use your word this morning 
to strengthen the knees that are feeble, and that that person would have the peace and the confidence to throw, <coughs> to throw themselves back again into the pursuit of your kingdom and your righteousness. And let us do all these things with the sight of Jesus in our minds, who has walked the path of obedience before us with great zeal, in whom we are all hidden and with whom we are united by faith. We thank you for him this morning. And we ask you, please, Father, help us to find our rest in him. In his name do we pray. Amen.